source has informed our committee that someone in the White House is currently having an affair with a member of your wife's staff. Do you know anything about this? A source? What source? Are you aware of any such affair? No, Congressman, and I'm not sure what this has to do with NASA contracts, which is the subject of this hearing. I'll determine what's appropriate for this hearing, Mr. Wilson. This is ridiculous. Are you Larry Wilson having a secret affair with a White House aide? And let me remind you, you're under oath. Welcome back to For All Mankind, the official podcast. I'm Chris Marshall, a.k.a. Commander Danielle Poole, on the Apple TV Plus series. Each week, I sit down with the cast, crew, and show creators to discuss what just happened in the latest episode. This podcast will be jam-packed with spoilers, so if you haven't seen Episode 7 of Season 3 yet, press pause, go watch, and come back. Today, there is a lot to talk about. So I'll be sitting down with director Dan Liu and visual effects supervisor Jay Red. But first, let's do a quick recap. Episode 7 spells trouble for just about everybody. Larry lies to Congress, Sergei is sent back to the Soviet Union, and Jimmy helps his new friends break into Johnson Space Center. At least he gets that statue of his parents out of it. But the biggest trouble is over on the Red Planet. Danny hurts his hand in an accident, gets addicted to painkillers, and smashes Nick's robot dog. Danny, you really gotta get your shit together. It all culminates as the Helios and Soviet crews drill for liquid water, while Danny remains at the base to moderate the drilling pressure. As the pressure rises, he switches off the comms. The drill explodes, lodging a piece of shrapnel in Ed Baldwin. When Ed and the others return, the ground rumbles as they turn to see the ridge has begun to collapse. Landslide. Thank you, sir. Watch. Whatever you say. Sir. I said watch or what? Oh, what are you going to do? You're a tough guy now? Huh? Come on, Danny. Come on. Hit me. Is that what you want? Hit me. Come on. Hit me! Be a man! I am joined today for our conversation on episode 307 with two highly intelligent and very cool dudes. First, we have our VFX director, Jay Red. Hi, Jay. Hello, Chris. <laughs> and then we've also got our director of the 307-308 block. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Which is Dan Liu. Hi, Dan. Hi, Chris. <laughs> okay, so quickly, Dan, give us a short rundown of what it is you do on For All Mankind. I direct on the show, so they bring in directors for every two episodes this season, and I got to come in and start from the prep and, I guess, the planning stages of everything into the shooting with production and a little bit of post for the block that I was responsible for, which is episodes seven and eight. Got it. 
And Jay, how about you? What do you do in this crazy world of ours? What do I do? Well, I uh, I kind of start on pretty early with the scripts while they're being written even sometimes, working with Ben and Matt and Ron and the showrunners and the writers. I'm trying to kind of scope out the whole season about like how are we going to shoot stuff? We're going to the moon. We're going to Mars. We got to make people hang and be zero G. And how are we going to shoot all the stuff that, you know, is in space? And how do we get that in camera and like not spend... $20 million, but, you know, make it look like, <laughs> make it look like a movie. We want people to have like a super immersive experience and have everything look detailed and realistic. And so it's my job to kind of work with, with almost, it seems like all the department heads and everybody on the, on the show, digital visual artists, technicians, engineers, nerds like me, trying to make all that stuff look good. <laughs> So I'm especially excited about this conversation today because there's so much about this process that I am just so curious about, and I'm like painfully uncool when it comes to these kinds of things. So if something comes up on set that I don't understand, I'm just like, how does that work? Jay, I'm going to start with you. Explain to me in layman's terms, how does the process go from the stuff you get from Dan when the episode is done to then making the thing that we see on TV? Dan comes in with his vision, of course, and having meetings with with the showrunners about what the episode should be. Let's say that Dan and I have gone through our versions of storyboards, which is really the kind of shots Dan wants to do in the show. He may come to me and say, hey, we want to do this big, giant avalanche, and here are some ideas. Um, you know, kind of help me bring that to life. And so I work with a group of artists called Previs, or pre-visualization, mm. and that allows us to get off like just 2D drawings and get into a 3D space. Almost mm. like you'd be playing a video game, right? Like exploring an environment. And so we have ideas about what we want Mars to look like. We kind of know what the characters are. We know what some of the vehicles are from our art department. So we put together really kind of rough versions in 3D so that we can work with Dan and like see how the cameras move and start putting a rough edit together before we've even shot any footage. Wait, wait, wait. I have to stop you. You're <laughs> making like a video game version of Danielle Poole on your computer before I even get on set? That sometimes happens. Yeah, it sometimes happens. Because it's like, okay. Well, we then why need, don't you guys we... show us that? That way we can do the thing that you saw us doing. It probably makes it's, your life a little easier. It's true. It's kind of a funny thing. And Dan may be able to speak to that about like, sometimes you don't want to show your actors what you're doing. Like, let the mystery go, right? But sometimes you, it's complicated shots, you know. We really need to involve everybody, including, you know, costume and sound even sometimes that comes into play. So we go through the pre-visualization process. And then... Dan's got pieces to work with on set. And then suddenly fast forward to, what, a couple weeks later, right, Dan? <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs> That's how fast we're moving. A couple weeks later, we're out on set and we're like, all right, we're in this little Martian sandbox. It literally feels like a sandbox, right? <laughs> You've been there, you know. It's like this I 90 by 90 foot a lot of time there. sand mm -hmm. and green screens around us. We know that's going to be Mars later. And Dan's like, all right. Where's the habs? Where's the cliff? Where's the lighting? What are we doing? You know, and he's out blocking shots. And and I'm making notes and I'm looking at it like, okay, this is going to affect visual effects. Let's not point into the light. Let's put a visor down. Mm. Let's take it off. Let's get rid of those wires. There's like a hundred things to look at at one time, right? So then fast forward months later, after Dan's done his cut, we're all over. And now we've got to make this stuff look real. And like, how do we make Mars? Oh my God. We've got all this amazing reference coming from like the Rovers, Perseverance, and um, Curiosity, and all the stuff coming, like real footage, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we make Mars? That is a worldwide effort, literally. <laughs> a year ago, 
Ben and Matt, the showrunners, and I, we were out in Utah. We went down there and scouted, thinking we would go back and shoot. Of we're going to do we like a five it. or six day shoot. It's yeah. But the problem is, it's going to be in August and be like 105 degrees. And so I came back and pitched this idea like, look, we've got to make so many digital shots. Mm -hmm. So we hired a company called XM2 who have amazing drone pilots. We use this kind of laser scanning that allows us to fly these drones and scan in 3D hundreds of acres of landscape. All in Utah. In southern Utah. Wow. that looks a lot like Mars, mm -hmm. right? So we ended up kind of going, whoa, there's four locations in southern Utah that look like crazily like Mars. So we started building those environments out of that scan data. And it's, you know, it's millions and tens of millions of polygons and all this nerdy stuff I won't get into. But that's how we ended up making Mars in, in, in the Utah land. So Dan, talk to me about, because you've worked a ton in sci-fi and have just finished working and now going back to work with us and also with Star Trek and other great sci-fi programs. What is it like for you as a director to have all the things that Jay's talking about, this huge scope and all these crazy intellectual concepts? But as a director, a lot of your work predominantly is just intimate with these actors to get them to tell an honest story. How do you bring together these two sort of disparate things? Well, I think a lot of my job is to have proper communication and mm -hmm. make sure every department, every actor, just everybody kind of comes together to bring the script and give it as much pizzazz as we need to tell this story. And the great thing is with a lot of sci-fi shows nowadays, you can get the scripts much earlier. So even mm -hmm. weeks before we prep, I'm reading the script and suddenly I'm getting all these ideas in my head. So by the time, you know, I come into the studio for day one of prep, I'm hunting down everybody right away so we can talk about what's possible within the budget, the time, and what pre-existing things they've done. I remember like on that first day, we were walking with the art department and meeting Jay and seeing like Utah, uh, right? And I'm like, wow, <laughs> this looks really great. And they would show me side-by-side -side comparisons with what's been you know, shown in Mars. And we're making this at a really great time where we've had unprecedented access to what Mars looks like. And by my second day, I'm usually uh, with my storyboarder. And in that first week, we can pitch to our showrunners exactly what we hope to achieve in each of these scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think I've shown you some of those storyboards because when we go and shoot, especially in Mars-related stuffs, um, then it's really necessary for all the actors to kind of know, like definitely Joel and Casey mm -hmm. saw every board um, mm -hmm. and moment and even some of the previs of that avalanche. Yeah. Because it's kind of essential in that when you're just watching green screens and endless land to yeah. <laughs> really realize where things are coming from. Yeah, I think every actor is different. But for me, I want as much information as I can possibly have. And you're right, Jay, when you talked about it being a sandbox. For our listening audience, you know, our show, we shoot at Sony. And I think we have three or four stages, but we've turned one entire stage into just the surface of Mars, which is really cool. We have It's a huge luxury because then you can drive the rover and do donuts in the <laughs> rover and you can haul boogie in that thing 30 miles an hour. And, yeah. you know, even though it's this great big sand pit, we're able to turn this sand pit into different vistas and build hills and valleys. And we did the same with the moon at one point. So, Dan, when you are working with the actors, like, you know, Jay is saying that, his end is all this technical stuff. 
when there is nothing practical, you know, there is no there, there, it's just green, 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 green. How do you see it in your mind's eye? And how do you convey it to the actors? Is it just through storyboards? Or is it, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you make it real before it's real? We've had more time to prep than actors have for on TV shows for the mm-hmm. episode. So mm-hmm. for me, I, when I step in there, I see exactly where the cliffs are. I see where the habs are in my head. And so, you know, sometimes like uh, Jay said, we don't always show the storyboards because we want to give you that freedom to explore a space. So mm-hmm. it might be like, you know, do anything you want in this, like within five feet of this circle, because we can account for that in VFX. And we want your performance to be natural Mm -hmm. because ultimately, you know, you want that exploration when you film to have something that's not just like locked in from your point of view, but as a collaborative effort between you and the actor. Something I always find really exciting when I'm on set is, you know, we're talking this conversation about the fancy and expensive things we do to make the show. But then there are some really not fancy, really not expensive things we do to make the show. (laughs) For example... Well, throughout this season, actually, when we were shooting in the um, Sojourner, which, of course, is all zero gravity, a lot of it was on wires and it was very complex. And then some of it is just me standing on one foot and just like moving as if, you know, I'm in zero gravity. And because you can't see the one foot, it looks like I'm floating. Yeah, we also have that little seat, right? The pendulum. Yeah, you that, little, that, like... that little seesaw kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's basically like a, a nicer seesaw and you just have the actors like sitting on there and you're shooting only their upper torso. It looks like they're floating, but it's just them sitting and someone else on the other side kind of just moving it very low, like, you know, thigh style, but mm-hmm. makes it look great. It's great because then you bring the camera into that process and you can just float the camera a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, Chris, you're kind of balancing on one leg. The background's moving. The camera's floating. Yeah, and it gives you this whole, we just buy it mm-hmm. as zero G. Yeah, I mean, if you notice all of the zero G scenes on our show, the camera's generally always floating and that just helps sell it more. You know, you don't have it locked off like some of our big emotional scenes on Earth. Um, you're actually just floating the camera in space. On a crane. Jay, silly question, but true. Why does it matter? Like, why does it matter that you guys are so meticulous with the, what did you say, nanobites or some some funny word you just said a second ago? But why does it matter that we do the, the drone shot and hundreds mm. of acres and this painstaking months-long artisans around the world? Why, why does it matter? It's like this, kind of what Dan's saying is like, we, we live in this amazing time where we're getting, you know, footage and high resolution panoramas from the surface of Mars, from these rovers we've sent there. And, you know, we're, as audiences over time have really grown accustomed to to detail and realism. And one of the things I love about our show is that while we're in an alternate timeline and have some fantasy elements to it, we, we are grounded in like real human stories and grounded mm-hmm. in a real space program that is, you know, as we get into more seasons, we're starting to get into unexplored territory, like literally. But um, I think that realism really matters because the stories are so real. The human elements are so real. The look of the show is real that you don't want to be, I don't want to be pulled out of an emotional moment because mm-hmm. the background's kind of weird or the CG mm-hmm. is like, ugh. Mm-hmm. We never, like the biggest compliment we can get or I can get as a, as a visual effects you know, artist or a supervisor is people say, well, what effects? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want people to say, oh, that's good CG. Like, no, 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 no. That means you noticed it. 
Dan, talk to me a bit, um, moving away some from the VFX and, and more to the story of 307. These guys have information that tells them that they maybe have found a water reserve. Again, why does that matter? Who cares if there's water on Mars? Long-term survival. You know, ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, exploring space is, the initial exploration is really how can we survive outside of our planet? Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating seeing the early stages of that just to mirror our own universe, as well as taking it into that kind of like grounded sci-fi realm of how could this realistically happen. And for any survival to happen, we need our essentials, like we need food, we need water, and we need uh, breathable air. You guys are fighting for survival. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to humanity for you guys to find and succeed in these missions. And that's why they're willing to risk so much because of what it can mean to all mankind. (laughs) And so in the search for water, of course, whoever wants to take the lead, who feels more confident about the science of it, I still don't understand exactly what happened and how come everyone almost dies at the end of seven. Maybe some people do die. You guys will have to find out when you watch 308. Explain to me step by step by step how we get to this crazy landslide. Dan? Okay. What's great about the show is like in terms of the detail of the science on the script, mm-hmm. you know, there's so many consultants and experts that you're working with in prep that I get explained to me. And part of it like goes in one year and stays there for a little bit and then leaves when I'm done shooting because <laughs> yes, it is so detailed. But ultimately, you know, they're drilling underground and it's hard drilling underground and it takes a lot of um careful tuning and planning, especially with calibrations on that big drill between where they are uh, remotely on the station Mm -hmm. and as well as at the actual drill site itself. Right. So, you know, the reason it kind of goes messy is, well, it wasn't properly maintained on the other end due to some drug-related issues. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, it's deeply human in that He's going through issues and he seeks to alleviate himself um, and get through it. But ultimately, it hinders him from doing his job properly at a key mm-hmm. moment that we've been building up through this whole episode and sure. really through the whole season since the slap from Karen, I think. And, you know, it leads up to an astronaut not doing his job and the pressure from continuously drilling without stopping or alleviating that pressure or mm-hmm. just like, you know, letting it calm down. It keeps on building and building until what we see that Jay did. Like uh, shaking up a can of Coke or something. It's kind of like that. And then like poking Mm -hmm. a hole in the side, Mm -hmm. right? Like as soon as you build up all that pressure and you poke a little hole in the side, you've, you've created this enormous buildup, right? And it, it becomes too much for that cliff to contain. And so they, they spike that ground Drill gets out of control, and it's just a chain reaction from there to where the whole side of that hill comes down. Jay, is it for you more difficult to do this enormous landslide that in practical world, you know, never happened for the actors? Or is it more difficult to do more subtle things that are less obvious? Like, can you hide more in the landslide? Or is the landslide really the hardest thing you do on the show? It is definitely up there with one of the hardest things that we're doing on the show. It's funny because mm-hmm. not many people have experienced a landslide, uh, right? Not I haven't, but mm-hmm. I've you know I've been in I've been in some 
pretty weird like skiing environments where snow's mm-hmm. falling down on you and that kind of stuff. So we try to tap into that really visceral tension, that visceral quality of, of a scene like that to create the perilous, you know, the fear and, the, and the, the feeling of being scared. Without sounding too pretentious, that scene is actually full of subtle stuff too. It's really mm-hmm. weird. It's not just like shaking the camera and have people go, ah, I'm going to die. You know, it's sure. like. Right. There's moment to moment. It's like, yeah. And at one point you think that they're going to be fine. Yeah. And th- yeah, of course. The way the light plays through the dust the way the shadow creeps up at their feet as they're running toward us. Like all that stuff is highly, highly planned for us to make those visual effects work. Like from cut to cut, you want to make sure that the avalanche doesn't feel too big on one shot or too small on one shot. Or you see it in the visors. You see it in the actor's eyes, right, of them freaking out. So let me just stop you for one second because I want to make sure that our audience understands exactly what's going on. So when we're in the spacesuits, which are incredibly heavy, you have to wear an air compressor inside the suit if you're going to wear the mask down because otherwise you're going to suffocate, right? So you've got this air compressor going. It also keeps the mask from fogging up, just like if you were wearing uh, snorkel gear. However, the air compressor is super loud, so every line you say will eventually have to be redone in the studio later, or you can lift the shield up and then do your work without this air compressor going. However, you guys have to then paint in later this glass dome and paint in all the reflections the dome would show, just like a pair of sunglasses, right? That's a great explanation. A lot of work. It, it is a lot. And I know Dan will probably remember that too. It's like, you know, can we shoot with the visors down? Because you, you you get a lot of realism out of that. And I think, you know, it may drive you mad trying to like, ah, I can't see through this glass or something. But we got to put that in because that is a massive part of, I think, the astronaut's experience on Mars is being confined in this bag, right? And like not being able to have access to like touch and reality. So all that subtle stuff really matters, like how the sun's reflected, how the, the color of the dirt in the glass, this color of the sky, like all that stuff we have to pay attention to. So that, again, it doesn't look fake. It's got to be real. Mm-hmm. This is now, um, it's it's both a directing question, but also maybe like a cinematographer question for you, Dan. In some of the work that you did with um, Casey, who plays Danny Stevens, He's, you know, drug addled and either, you know, on uppers or on downers or some combination of the two. And there's scenes of him popping pills in the mirror. And the way that you shoot him, you shoot him from like a low angle. It just makes him look just drugged out. (laughs) Talk to me about the decision. Is this um, something you've learned from experience or a film school thing? Or just does it come from intuition when you choose to shoot Casey from that angle? Or even when you shoot Larry and he's in his Congress meeting and he's lying and there's another of that same sort of shot where it's a really low worm's eye angle, very unflattering, looking up at Larry. How does that inform the story? How does that tell the story just from angles? For me, generally, it's just what I know I like and don't like about portraying things in a certain way. So it is very intuitive. But at the same time, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of like, you know, decades of work of people that I've just watched and became part of my subconscious. And so in terms of his drug thing, though, we, me and Stephen McNutt, our DP, had lots of early meetings about how are we going to do this drug thing? Because sometimes a script would refer to an old movie or something and we'd look at it and be like, well, this has been done to death. Mm -hmm. So can we get something else inspired and pitch it to the showrunners so that, you know, we can have something uniquely our own? And what 
we ended up doing was Stephen found these tilt lenses. The way they work is you can have, um, it's tilted and you can have part of something in focus on a frame Mm -hmm. and everything else drops out of focus, but then you can have something elsewhere in the frame in focus. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can really play with what's in focus. And we did that. uh, I think there was one shot where uh, he was flashing back looking at that red button and it was his eye was in focus and that button was in focus, but everything else was out of focus. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a very unique look that hasn't really been done in this type of circumstance. And we achieved that with these tilt lenses that required our operator, Tim, to do double duty. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when we did the test, they thought it was going to be amazing. And sure enough, it turned out quite amazing. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys now, because everyone, you know, I get all these messages on Instagram and Twitter, and folks are always wondering about little Easter eggs in the show. Um, we've talked about the high stakes vis effects of creating a landslide and rock wall and all these things. What are the fun little things that are in the alternate history of our world that are things that the audience may not notice? Like I think about in episode one, where we've got Ellen talking to Bill Clinton, right? And she's you know, shot, reverse shot with him in a political debate in 1992 that, of course, never happened. What's it like to do those sorts of scenes compared to the sweeping vistas of Mars and these, you know, huge, big, classically VFX things? It's quite a bit of work to go retro, Yeah, actually. There's this funny thing about, um, I'm going to, you know, not to be overly technical, but it's like, I, I mean, I was born in the early 70s. And so, you know, like I grew up in, you know, video and when camcorders came out and all this stuff. And a lot of this news footage from that period, from the 90s, is like pretty bad. You know, it's like before HD or before smartphones and all this stuff. And so for us, like our showrunners love this feeling of the of period stuff. So we have this all this stock footage and suddenly we're like, how do we put our characters into one of these things? Like, how do we put Ellen talking to Clinton? Mm -hmm. And so we've got to shoot our actors against green screen, do all this stuff to make the lighting match. The set's got to match. We we don't have any information about how this stuff was shot. So we have to work with Stephen McNutt, our DPs, and Ross, and match the lighting. And then later, again, with super awesome artists, figure out how to make this stuff look purposefully bad. Is there anything else that you can think of, things that were originally in the script that never made the edit? Of course, only up until 307. We don't want to spoil anything. That you can think that you're like, damn, I really love this little nugget and it got uh, it got nixed. Yeah. Th- so there was a whole scene. You'll probably remember this, Chris, because it was mm. a bunch of stuff. It's like when, so the crew first lands, right? And it's like, well, how... How do they put their house together? Like they're in the Wild West, basically, of Mars, right? And and there's this whole scene where we put together of like literally like shovels and making bricks and like putting the house together and the news footage of all that. And it was, Uh right? It was originally kind of this bigger deal, which is like, Mm -hmm. let's show how, you know, the settlers are settling the land, so to Mm -hmm. speak. And so there was all this footage of we're moving crates around and they're pushing the Habs together and hoisting a flag and, you know, doing all this stuff. And it was a much bigger thing. But it turned out it turned out to be like, well, you know, you put it in the episode and you get into editorial and it, everybody feels like, well, it's kind of slowing the pace down a little bit. You know, but that would have been cool to do is a ton of work for everybody to make all that look real. But it was a nice moment of like, you know, everybody coming together to kind of build their habitat. But we still have the moments in the newsreel. But that was a specific thing that we spent, I don't know, maybe even a couple of days shooting. Yeah. 
Okay, so before we go, let's talk a bit about Aleda and her discovery or beginnings of inklings of discovery that there's been some espionage and traitorous behaviors going on and and something that the milk isn't clean. What was that like to shoot Dan and that experience working in that world? Well, it's so great in our world of drama because we can have time and prep to rehearse beforehand. So actually the showdown scene really with um, Aleda and Margot, we went into the office for an hour and a half and just really explored the space, talked mm. to uh, red lines and tried different variations of it so that by the time when we were shooting, they were rearing to go. Mm-hmm. And I think we used the office really well and they made it feel so natural, just like the cat and mouse of it really, because that's ultimately what this is. Margot thinks she's been had, and then suddenly she realized she hasn't. Then Aleda's kind of chasing her, and then she's fighting back at Aleda. And that's, you know, we take that starting from the doorway to Margot's desk, where it's kind of like she's retreating there. And then she needs to just walk away from it, but then she goes on the attack, and then it's Aleda that has to get pushed to the middle of the room, and then she exits the door. And so it's really getting, I think if we didn't have time to rehearse it would have been a lot less use of the space because you'd be rushed in all departments. But because of that rehearsal, you know, we went ahead and told uh, lighting and the DP and camera and everyone like where the areas of action would be so that they can set up everything so that it would look good before they shot. Because, you know, sometimes that takes an hour to set up each area where an actor is. The conclusion of that scene, if I'm remembering correctly, Margot grabs the sofa cushion and just... Oh, that's Sergey. That's Sergey's scene. Her and Sergey. Oh, scene. okay. That's the Sergey scene. Yes. Is that... But that's in 307. Am I right? Yes. But that okay. that was amazing because... She grabs the sofa cushion and just screams crying into it. And I was like, wow. So strong. I mean, I was... My mind was blown. It was so good. Yeah. Well, that's one of those magical moments you have when you work a scene because they were doing their thing and we would... Uh, well, I would ask more and more on certain aspects and then she would try things and sometimes it didn't feel natural so then you know after we had a talk about it she just did it and suddenly at the end she let it all out into the cushion mm-hmm. and we were in this like close-up I'm like th- I looked at the writer I'm like that's amazing can we end it that way because it's not scripted and he's like yeah yeah no end it that way and so I'm like okay we need to go back to our wide so we can have like a nice wide <laughs> shot of her in the cushion yeah. yeah and then she and then she comes up to me and she's like I think I can only give you like one more of those. I'm like, yeah. okay, we're doing it in this wide to end it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and she's just, she just feels it. So you need to, like for me working with her, I love just trying to give them the opportunity mm-hmm. to have moments in certain areas. And so that's my whole thing when I work with Ren is I try to have spots that could interest Margot and Sometimes she'll give me something completely surprising. And sometimes we can work together to get this interesting thing that was semi-planned before, but then she'll do it her way and it'll come out great. Yeah, that was powerful. Okay, so as I draw the conversation to a close, Dan, I'm going to start with you. In the process of working on the show, what is the highlight and what's the low light for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, the highlight is just working on the show itself. You know, I've been such a big fan of the first two seasons that I was so excited to come on. I I remember in my interview, I even uh, told um, Ben and Matt that I'm like, oh, I love every family in the show. I can't wait to work with the Stevens, like Gordo and Tracy. (laughs) And I know they were just laughing inside because only the first two episodes of season two have aired. (laughs) 
<laughs> so, you know, I just fell in love with each of the characters and their families and their life dreams. And it's great that we come a decade later and see how they progressed as people and getting to really realize that in the story. For me, it's coming from that perspective of every scene was a dream to work on because、mm-hmm. it was like, you know, getting to evolve these characters that I've fallen in love with. And、um, I don't really have a low light on the show because Come on, I think. Come on, you got a low light. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the traffic to get to work. <laughs> traffic. <laughs> right on.、Uh, okay, Jay, how about you? What's the highlight and what's the low light in all of this? There's a couple highlights for me, which is working with artists and working with the entire crew of the show to bring this stuff around. I don't just do it myself. Like, I'm only as good as my team and the people I'm working with, and they make me look good. And the passion on the show is so intense.、Um, and I'm, I'm with Dan on this one. Like, I, even though I'm in charge of visual effects for the show, I'm ultimately like just in love with the storylines and the characters.、Mm-hmm. And、mm-hmm. I like to be part of the storytelling team in making pictures. Like, I love that this show is not about space,、mm-hmm. but it's about people in the backdrop of space.、Um, you know, I get to see people like me reflected in the show as, as, as a gay person and as family members who are biracial and all of this stuff. It's like, it just touches me deeply to be able to make. Cool pictures and bring stuff alive with teams like this. That's my high point. It's kind of varied. Like, there are days where I have to pinch myself, even at two in the morning. I'm like, that, and that's my low point where it's like, I wish I wasn't working so many hours. But, <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, you look at it and you see, you know, you get notes from people you don't even know. You、yeah. see people's responses online where, like, this story touched me so deeply. You know, that, as cliche as it sounds, like seeing people affected in positive ways or they're moved. Is just like that, is just like chef's kiss. That's like the best part. I just want to thank you both for doing this, for being here. I adore you both so much. And it's just so exciting to get the opportunity to pick your brains. Thank you, Chris. Dan Liu, Jay Red, thank you both so much for joining me today on the For All Mankind podcast.、Woo-hoo. We did it. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks for joining us on this episode of For All Mankind, the official podcast. Be sure to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. And don't forget to join us again next week where we'll discuss episode eight. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by At Will Media, executive produced by Will Malnati, and me, Chris Marshall. Produced by Elliot Davis, Drew Beebe, Naila Andre, and Jenny Barish. Sound editing and mixing by Andrew Holzberger. Until next time, I'm Chris Marshall. Safe and sound, Earthside.